1: Good morning and welcome to Cox Media Houston's Public Affairs Show. FYI, my name is Susie Hanks. We celebrate the 4th of July as the birth of America, the beginning of democracy, Independence Day. But what you think you know about July 4th may be wrong. And with us today we have Dr. James Kirby Martin, who is a nationally recognized scholar of the American Revolution and author of several bo- books, multiple, more books than I can count on two hands, and the, a professor of history at the University of Houston. Good morning, Dr. Martin.
2: Well, good morning. It's certainly my pleasure to be here with you today and with our listening audience. Uh, uh, there, there are great stories about the American Revolution and the contributions that people made, and hopefully we'll be able to share some of those uh, with our listening audience today.
1: We um, talk, We met for a, a VE Day show about uh, Victory in Europe Day, and it was so fascinating, and uh, so I thought this is so important, and so you're such a passionate person about this. You would be perfect to talk to about this. So first of all, let's kind of talk about this. Um, uh, as I alluded to, let's get right into it. July 4th, everybody thinks that's the day, but there is a little bit of a timeline here. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yes, there is definitely a... Um Well, it's a very interesting kind of a timeline. Uh, You really go back to the middle of May uh, in 1776, and uh, the colony of Virginia will pass resolutions calling for a Declaration of Independence, and that's a very important step in the process. A man by the name of Richard Henry Lee will carry uh, that document to the Congress, and what will happen then, the Congress will form a committee to, Uh, write a Declaration of Independence. As we all know, Thomas Jefferson was the chief author, although he did get some assistance from some well-known individuals like Benjamin Franklin and John Adams. They were also on the committee to write the Declaration. And then that issue came before the Continental Congress then on July 1st, and there was the debate, should we declare independence? That's what the debate is all about on July 1st. They actually took a vote on that particular day, and only nine states voted in favor of independence. So they had to carry the question to the next day.
1: Nine out of how many?
2: Uh, nine out of 13. 13, okay. And they carried the question to the next day. So what the point I should make here is that the really big vote in terms of declaring independence uh, occurred on July 2nd. Mm-hmm. And on July 2nd, there was a nearly unanimous vote uh, with a lot of, shall we say, politicking going on with those states that were reluctant to uh, go all the way. Uh, And and what happened in that situation then, on the 2nd, 12 states voted for independence. New York abstained. In fact, New York will continue to abstain in the process until the middle of July because the delegates felt they didn't have the authority uh, from their home provincial Congress to go ahead and vote for independence. So it's a nearly unmanaged vote. So what we do actually is we declare independence on the 2nd. Then the question is, what do we want to say to the world about the reasons why we want to go our separate way, separate from the British Empire? And that's what the Declaration of Independence, that document itself, is all about. So it will be debated, actually, the next two days. And finally, there will be that nearly unanimous vote on July 4th. There are modifications made in the document, some slight changes here or there, and so we actually have the the passage of the Declaration of Independence, the document itself, the reasons to the world, that's on July 4th. Actually, at that point, there's only one delegate who signed the document, and his name was John Hancock. He happened to be the so-called, well, he was. His title was the President of Congress, but most of the delegates didn't actually get around to signing until the early part of August. But the document has passed. It's been proclaimed, and really the first major reading of that document was in New York City on July 9th, five days later, when George Washington, commander-in-chief, actually said, we need that document read to everyone who is serving in the Continental Army to try to inspire, the, inspire them with the reasons as to why we are going our separate way and trying to found a new nation which will be dedicated to human liberty and freedom separate from the British Empire.
1: So why do we, why so why is the 4th the day that has been chosen?
2: Well, that's a very good question and I'm not sure that I can provide an answer. Uh John Adams was hoping it would be July 2nd. In fact, he said in his uh, uh I believe this was in his diary that he expected that would be the great epoch of. That would be the date that we would celebrate would be July 2nd. But over the years the custom more or less came about and uh uh, the document, the, the day of the 4th, was actually celebrated during the Revolution, and I suppose it just caught on, and that little distinction between, on the one hand, declaring independence, on the other hand, uh, giving the reasons for independence, that sort of got muted and uh, didn't really become a, a matter of great importance in terms of our national development.
1: Well, um, let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the 4th of July and, and and the Declaration of Independence and everything, and and that place in the timeline of the Revolutionary War because when I started to read back and look at at today I was under the assumption that that was the day that declaration was uh, declared and then the revolution started but that is not so is it
2: no it's really not there's a there's a fairly complex story going all the way back to 1763 and and really to get shall we say get bogged down in that all of that detail we probably would take several hours, and I don't think we have that kind of time. But but what I can tell you is that uh, the British Empire won an amazing war. We call it the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War, uh, and that really changed the map because France was eliminated and all of its imperial holdings in North America were eliminated and primarily were switched to the British. And so eliminating the French really does make a difference in terms of the attitude of the colonists. And they say, well, look, we helped win. We helped defeat the French. You should appreciate us. But the attitude on the part of England was we have all of this new territory, and how are we going to manage it efficiently? How are we going to protect the Indians on the frontier? And all those sorts of questions begin to be raised. What will happen then is over the next several years, there will be a whole variety of issues. Some of them will focus on taxation, uh, the Stamp Act, the Townsend Duties, uh, the Tea act of 1773, and the colonists make it clear We don't feel we're obligated to pay these kinds of taxes. And so the Crown will take the position yes, the colonists will take the position no, and really what you have is a process of a slow but sure breakdown of communications to the point where after the Tea Party in Boston in December of 1773, actually what's going to happen, Lord North, who is like the prime minister, will basically say uh, the die is, and that's Excuse me, that's actually the King George III. I can throw him in as a better quote. The die is now cast. The colonists must either submit to our authority or they must triumph. So what is going to happen then? Things slowly but surely will progress toward a shooting war which will break out on the 19th of April in 1775 at Lexington and Concord. And what is that, some 14 months before you actually have a declaration of independence
1: and tell me about that first skirmish I guess we um, the the history of the of, of the American Revolution all the different battles They are all many of them are are are, are kind of small and 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 nothing at all like we imagine tell me about that first one
2: well the the day of Lexington and Concord which is really one of the critical days of the whole Revolutionary War came about because King and Parliament had made the decision, we're not going to mollify the colonists anymore. We're not going to back down anymore. We're not going to repeal acts like the Stamp Act or whatever it is. We're going to make them shape up. And so the decision is made in, in January 1775 uh, to order General Thomas Gage, who is also the governor of Massachusetts, to show the colonists a thing or two. And, and what happens then is, Secret orders are written. That's what they're called, the secret orders, and they're going to be sent to General Gage in Boston. He'll receive his copy on the 14th of April, and these orders basically say you're dealing, and I'm I'm basically quoting, with a rude rabble, without plan, without concert, and without conduct. So please arrest the principal actors and abettors of the rebellion or do something to show these folks once and for all that they can't stand up to British arms. Well, Gage gets his orders, but amazingly enough, because these orders pass through several seals, and uh, they eventually get to him, Samuel Adams, who's one of the great agitators in the coming of the Revolution in Boston, already has a copy of the secret orders, and he and John Hancock Hancock will fly town. They go go out into the countryside, actually locating at Lexington. So Gage then decides, what I am going to do is I am going to have a military action, a demonstration of force and he and his officers will select a elite unit of 700 men and they will go on the 18th of April late at night back across Boston Bay and they're going to march all the way to Concord Massachusetts that is a target because it's well known that is a point at which the colonists are actually collecting arms and ammunition to defend themselves uh, if necessary should the shooting war break up well early at dawn on the 19th of April, this British column of 700 will be approaching Lexington. And some resistors, about 70-minute men, as we call them, will come out and will block the road to Concord. And basically what, they're, what they want to do is they simply want to make a statement. They're not looking for a gunfight, but they do have weapons with them. But they really want to make a statement, uh, dear British officers, you are— and soldiers, you are marching on the soil of free English subjects. Would you mind turning around and going back to Boston? Well, no one knows exactly what happened. But in the midst of all of that, what? what? Someone fires a shot. We don't know who fought, fired the shot. We don't know it was a, a gun that misfired, whether it was one of the nervous uh, Minutemen. No one knows to this day. But th- what will happen then is the advance in that British column, the advance guard will lay down uh, fire, and a total of 18 colonists will be killed or wounded, many of them, by the way, shot in their backs. Well, why were they shot on their backs? Because they had made their statement, and they had begun to retreat from the field. Well, that column will continue on. It will, we'll get to Concord, and what will happen there is there will be some capturing of arms and burning and destruction and one of those one of those units one of those uh companies will go north of boston and go across what we call the old north bridge and up on the hill there's a militia you can if you're there today you can see from that hill you can see back to concord back to this bridge uh over this particular stream and um what these minutemen see up on the hill is they see fire back in the community where these arms are being burned and they they fear the british are What, they're burning the town of Concord, and so they will advance, and you have the second, what will be a firefight at Concord Bridge, and at that particular point in time, actually two British soldiers will be shot and killed, and now we have what? Killing on both sides. Mm -hmm. So the wrap-up for the day is the British now very extended, 20 miles from Boston, have to somehow get back and... The communities have been alerted. We know about the rides of Paul Revere, William Dawes, and others. And all the way back, as that column will retreat, uh, even with reinforcements coming up, that column will be, uh, shall we say, fired upon. And there's actually, uh, it's not a very glorious day for British arms. The casualties are about four times as high for the British as they were for the Americans. But that's the day. That began the war, yeah. 14 months before a declaration.
1: And there were a couple of other skirmishes before that, um, be- before the in- the Declaration of Independence. Oh, happened. yes,
2: yeah. yes. The, the uh, war will actually, and that is one of the issues that will ultimately force a declaration, the war will continue to expand. Uh, actually, the bloodiest battle of the Revolutionary War, if you take actual casualties was the Battle of Bunker Hill, which occurred on June 17th of 1775. Uh, The British decide they're going to run the—well, maybe back up. The colonists will rally after that British force on the 19th of April retreats to Boston, and an army will sort of spring up of about 15,000 colonists, and they surround Boston, and they trap the British there. So General Gage and he had some other advisors will try to break out of Boston, and that's what Bunker Hill is all about, actually fought on a hill closer to Boston called Breeds Hill. We still call it Bunker Hill. Mm-hmm. And on that particular day, the British will mass forces, uh, forces in the area of 2,500 up against about 1,500 colonists that are dug dug in on Breeds Hill and a few other defenses. And those British colonists will march up and march up and march up, and they will be slaughtered in withering fire basically until uh, the colonists, those who are fighting and representing the American position, run out of ammunition. They will be driven off. They'll be driven off the hill. So you can say, well, who controls the battle at the end of the day? That's supposedly the victor. But the fact of the matter was the British had taken a terrible, terrible beating. They had 40% casualties, over 1,000 casualties. Many of the officers were killed in the battle. It was another inglorious day for Uh, British arms. But one of the keys is the British now understand this isn't going to be the cake walk they thought it was going to be. And so they will now get very, very serious about actually the matter of we have to get this rebellion, as they've called it, and as they will declare it in August of 1775, we have to get these colonists under control. And they will begin to mass forces, uh, which will be actually very impressive by 18th century standard because they didn't want to lose these colonies. Yeah.
1: We are talking with Dr. James Kirby Martin, and we're talking about uh, the Re- the Revolutionary War and about the Fourth of July, and I wanted to ask you, who was who? Uh, because there's the nationalists, is that right? And the, 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 the can you kind of?
2: But yes, yes. Let, well, at the time we're talking about, you really could divide the population into three groups. The first group would be the one we're probably most familiar with, and those are the folks uh, like Samuel Adams, John Hancock, Patrick Henry, George Washington, who begin to realize and begin to accept by the spring and summer of 1775 that this is going to be a rebellion that must lead to a full-scale revolution and to finally winning our independence from the British Empire. So we'll call those folks the Patriots. Patriots, The British like to call them, of course, the rebels, (laughs) because that's a term of derision. Then, on the other hand, you have the Loyalist population, and it is a very significant part of the population. Let me give you my estimates. If Twenty-five, maybe 30 percent of the population would really be, okay, let's go all the way for independence. That is, we are the true patriots. You might have had another 25 to 30 percent and say, this is nonsense. We are part of the greatest empire in the world. Why would we want to separate? We have enjoyed such prosperity. Sure, we have a few taxes to pay, but is that really all that bad? And those folks want to and will end up, many of them will end up under British arms and colonial regiments fighting for the British. Then what do you have in the middle? Oh, forty, fifty 40%, 50% of the population, and, and that's the neutralist group. And that is, well, I'm not sure which way I want to go on this thing. Uh, I don't want to commit. Uh, and I always remember this one quote from a gentleman in Philadelphia midway through the war, and he said, well, let who would be king in this situation. I well knew that I, no matter what, I would still be a subject. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of uncommitted people uh, out there. And part of the challenge of the Patriot side is to try to keep winning those folks over to their side so they have enough strength to go ahead and pursue all the way to victory and independence. Yeah.
1: Um uh, let's talk a little bit about Valley Forge. Was that the turning point that uh, that that it has been portrayed in history as?
2: I would not rate Valley Forge as the turning point. In fact, Valley Forge can be looked at in many different ways. First of all, that army that went in there was bedraggled, many cases without virtually without clothing. Washington talks about it. He said, "We got a half naked army on our hands." Mm-hmm. Uh, food supplies have broken down, uh, the British had captured Philadelphia. All we're doing is standing guard 20 miles outside to the northwest, and that is in the Valley Forge area. It is a very brutal winter, there's no doubt about that. And there's an army of approximately 10,000 that will go in. There's quite a bit of desertion. There's also disease. There's death. One of the problems at Valley Forge was the ground is frozen, and they don't have forage for the horses, and horses start to die, and they can't bury them because the ground's frozen. Well, if you can imagine up a, imagine up a rather putrid stink, that's what Valley Forge smelled like. And what happened there was was that those folks who were committed actually did uh, get better training. Baron von Steuben uh, f- uh, showed up from Europe. Uh, He was a master at training troops, and the army was able to survive and endure and strengthen itself, Uh, so it was was really capable of continuing the fight into 1778. So that's part of the story of Valley Forge. But then the other part of the story that we don't talk about very much is, well, why was that army in such terrible condition? Why was that army bedraggled? Uh, Why was it uh, short of food? And that was because supply had broken down, and this is a real problem because if supplies break down, you can't keep the Army in the field. Washington commented, I don't think we can keep this thing going if the population doesn't start supporting us. And popular support goes back to that neutral factor was a real problem. So a lot of the suffering at Valley Forge, well, you can lay some of the blame on the Americans themselves if you, if you look at it from that point of view. Then the good news is it's during that period, actually, that the French nation will come out, sign an alliance system with the Americans and will begin to provide the critical difference in supplies, uh, in troop strength, uh, in providing a naval force. They can now attack the British in other parts of the world. Uh, and that changes the whole nature of the war. So Valley Forge is sort of a mixed bag. But it's, it, 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 it's a very, very important story because I think it's important to point out not everyone suffered. But those individuals at Valley Forge did suffer, and they did endure. Some of them survived horrible conditions, and they would continue on to fight and win American freedom. So let's give them credit for that. Yeah.
1: Um, I uh, am, am interested in seeing a lot of the things that you write about George Washington and on uh, as, as, as uh, uh, I guess, hero, and also of... Um, of uh, Benedict Arnold and Benedict Arnold's legacy in history is that of a of, of, of a turncoat of a of, of a traitor. But you uh, point out that there that he was a hero as well. Is that-
2: Very much so, and that's one of the that's probably I mean I would say Arnold has to be described as one of the most interesting characters of the whole revolution because in 1775 he's an enthusiastic patriot. There's no doubt about that. And he gets involved in northern campaigning during the war. He's detached from Washington. Washington describes Arnold as his best fighting general in 1776 and into 1777. And Arnold will play a very important role in challenging British forces coming through Canada with the idea of dropping uh, through Lake Champlain down the Hudson River. The whole British strategy is we really can control the Hudson corridor running up to Albany through Lake Champlain— cut off New England, the center of the rebellion, wrap it up by uh, taking out New England. And Arnold is a master at defeating that strategy, uh, so much so that uh, without going into enormous detail about him, uh, he will become the critical commander in the field in the Battles of Saratoga. The Battles of Saratoga in September and October of 1777 in the second battle, Arnold is shot for a second time in supporting the American cause, uh, his leg is mangled. The horse is, that he is riding on is killed, comes crashing down on him, seriously wounded, almost dead, and yet Congress in the end doesn't give him the credit for what he did there, and that's part of the problem in the story of Benedict Arnold. So he was a real hero, but somewhere along the line, it just the cause gave out for him, and he just said, I don't think this is worth it. I have fought his words. I have bled. I have committed, I have given, and my contributions are not appreciated. And in the end, amazingly enough, I'm not sure we did the right thing by splitting from the British. Maybe it wasn't that bad after all. And I know lots of other reasons are given. That is that it was the money and it was his beautiful second wife, Peggy Shippen, and then in the old days it was the devil that influenced him and so on and so forth. But actually a lot of it had to do with growing disillusionment with the cause to the point where he felt – it made no sense to continue on and giving and giving and giving, uh, and not getting anything back.
1: Um, it, it's fascinating to me. He was a military genius and, and, and yet, uh, turned out. And then the whole entire, I guess it took on a life of its own, the, 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 um, the, the story of him. Um, one other character that I wanted to kind of touch on, there are so many different incredible characters in this incredible story, true story, but, um, one of them that's very topical right now, Hamilton, because of the play. And uh, I was interested, you went to go see Hamilton. and Tell me a little bit about that and about who Hamilton was. And we only have about five minutes, so <laughs> I know you okay, can't I'll do I'll it try all to make this, I'll try to make this <laughs> brief.
2: I can't, I can't go through the whole know, play, obviously. But uh, I was. it was a great privilege to go and, and see this uh, magnificent Broadway show. Highly recommend uh, to all Americans to go see it. Hamilton is one of those amazing characters, uh, grew up with nothing, uh, born out of wedlock in the West Indies, comes to America, driven to succeed, and succeed he did. Uh, And that's the story that they tell in the play. And they also then pit Hamilton against his chief rival, a man by the name of Aaron Burr, and ultimately that's going to lead, because the two of them get along during the war, but in the end... um, well, they have a duel in 1804, the duel at Weehawken, as we call it, and Hamilton will fire his pistol in the air, uh, and uh, uh, Burr levels him. And that's the end of Alexander Hamilton dying in his mid 40s. Spoiler the, alert. That's right. Everybody knows. Okay, the end all right. That. Every, I think, all right, I'm <laughs> yeah. sorry. I, I shouldn't have said that, but <laughs> no, yes. That's good. But it, what, the, what this magnificent musical does, and it does with hip hop and. Uh, various other forms of move, move, uh, music. I even heard a little boogie-woogie in there at one time, and that was Thomas Jefferson, and I was certainly giggling. I just don't imagine Jefferson and boogie-woogie together. <laughs> but uh, uh, I, all I can say is that what they do so well is they show the complex realities that people went through trying to live their lives in a wartime situation and then even more perhaps importantly surviving the war a process process of beginning to build a new nation, which would amount to something. And that was not an easy process. Uh, There was all sorts of dissent. Should we go this way? Should we go that way? And Hamilton is what we would call a strong nationalist. He wanted to build the nation, and he wanted the nation to have a strong credit rating. One of his great fears was that the nation, which was very heavily in debt and virtually bankrupt, by the way, by the end of the war, was that if we don't if we don't establish our credit among the nations of the world we will continue as a non-nation or a non-entity among those nations that's an important part of the story and then you have the rival of course Jefferson doesn't want that and i'm trying to remember some of the uh, some of the lines but uh throughout the play hamilton says i'm not going to throw away my shot i'm not going to throw my, away my shot and burr is saying you know talk less you know actually uh actually uh, you should just you know, smile more, and that's the difference between the two of them. One is a dedicated servant, uh, Burr is more of a politician type, uh, and it will lead then to Hamilton finally throwing away his shot uh, in that duel. It's a very, very moving, in many ways tragic story about a person who did contribute enormously uh, to the development of the United States.
1: Yeah, quite a a, a brilliant um, a musical written by...
2: That's right. Uh, I, I mean, that's part of the amazement. Uh, I, when I when I st- when the play started, I had no idea what I was getting into. But this gentleman, uh, I believe his name is Lin Manuel Miranda, uh, who plays Hamilton. Uh, it's it's absolutely stunning. I was just blown away. I, it was one of the greatest evenings of my life to be to be uh, a, a part of that experience with my family uh, on that evening. Yeah.
1: Well, we have been talking with Dr. James Kirby Martin, who is a nationally recognized scholar of the American Revolution and author of several books and professor of history at the University of Houston. Um, thank you so much for coming in and talking about this incredible part of our lives that we celebrate so joyously on July 4th, but there's so much more that uh, is behind it that we don't know, and, and, and I want to thank you for coming in and for making it so fascinating. You're well, really wonderful It's very much
2: that. my pleasure to be uh, with you, and uh, I would just encourage people, people to go out there and Read, 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 and find out what they can, because it is really the beginnings of where we are today. Yeah. Um, and still, in many ways, a revolution is still form, forming in a certain sense where we are today.
1: Well, isn't it continually forming and reforming? Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. That's right. Thank you, and happy Fourth of July.
2: My pleasure. Happy Fourth, everyone.
1: Happy Fourth. My name is Susie Hanks. You've been listening to FYI.